You are listening to a sermon from Village Baptist Church in Petaluma. For more sermons like this one, please visit our website at villagebaptisthome.org. Our mission is to win people to Christ and develop them into active disciples. We pray this sermon is a blessing to you. Now let's hear today's message. So when my brother and I were growing up, we loved wrestling. Um, Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock, Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase, The Undertaker, Kane, Superfly Jimmy Snuka. I mean, we loved them. We went to this place called Blockbuster or Hollywood Video. I know some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. We would, we would rent these uh, things called VHSs, and we would put these tapes in and watch WrestleMania and the Survivor Series. And um, I mean, we loved wrestling. Had our dad buy us all the different merchandise. We had the Brett the Hitman heart glasses. I mean, absolute fanatics. But the thing that was kind of frustrating about wrestling was you had what's called the face and the heel. The face was the good guy and the heel was the bad guy. And, you know, when the music came on, the good guy came out, everybody would scream because they loved him and they would cheer him on. But when the, when the heel would come out, everybody would boo them because the heels, they would cheat. They would get objects from outside the ring and hit you with it. I mean, they were horrible. And the, the frustrating thing was that sometimes someone who was a face, the good guy, could all of a sudden become a heel. Out of nowhere, out of the blue. And so it made it really hard to know who to trust. Because as you're watching this, you're saying, yeah, today you're a face, today you're a good guy, but how do I know that tomorrow you're not going to become a heel? And our hearts were broken multiple times when one of our heroes became a villain. And it was it was it was devastating to us. Now I don't know if you ever had that experience with someone that you trusted, someone that you looked up to, someone who was a friend, coworker, spouse, all of a sudden, out of the blue, turns on you. And you hear that they're talking about you. You hear that they no longer like you. And you're like, where, where did that come from? If that's happened to you before, then you know that it hurts. You know that it's devastating. And over the past 10 years or so, I have been watching as many, many professing Christians all of a sudden, out of the blue, say, I'm no longer a Christian. I don't follow Christ anymore. I don't consider myself a Christian anymore. I've seen pastors, teachers, leaders, elders, worship leaders, apologists, on and on and on, people who you would think are going to be there forever who are saying, I'm no longer a Christian. Just last week, a guy who had a PhD in theology, he just wrote a book and had just released it and it was getting rave reviews, got on, got on his Instagram and said to everybody, I'm no longer a Christian. And he was kind of happy about it. He was saying, now I feel like I'm free and I can have a relationship and I'm happy. And we're like, how is it you are literally training the pastor's that are being sent out to churches, and now you're saying you're not a Christian. Ravi Zacharias, we learn, he's the number one Christian apologist, traveled the world, defending the faith, preaching the gospel, people getting saved, come to find out that behind the scenes, he's abusing women sexually and was an absolute devil. And so over the years, I've just been wondering, like, what is happening? How is it that that kind of thing could go on and nobody knows it? Nobody detects it. Nobody 
sees it coming. How could that happen? I want you to meet me in John chapter 12, because I think our text today is going to give us a little bit of insight into what's going on. John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. I want to tag this text, the rest of the story, the rest of the story. I don't remember where I heard this phrase, um, the rest of the story. My guess was that I heard it with my dad in the car because he would always be listening to one of two things, either Fela Kuti, he'd be listening to sports talk radio on KMBR, or news talk radio, KGO or uh, 740. And I'm guessing that this is where I heard the show. I had to look it up. It was a show by a man named Paul Harvey who did a a story on some unknown story or fact, and he would leave out some of the most important details until the end, and then he would end his broadcast by saying, and now you know the rest of the story. He could have been on TV. I don't even remember. But the interesting thing is that he would leave out a very important detail and then bring it in at the end. And in this sermon, I just want to make one point, and one point only, and this is the point. Outward acts and words don't tell the whole story. Outward acts and words don't tell the whole story. I want us to look at Judas's words, and I want us to look at his works. I want us to look at his words, and I want us to look at his works. Now, the story that we're looking at, Jesus is at a house in Bethany right after he raised Lazarus from the dead, and Martha and Mary are there, and the disciples, and during this party, Mary comes and she takes this bottle of expensive perfume, breaks it open, and puts it on the feet of Jesus. And I want us to notice Judas's words. What was the thing he said? And ironically, this is the very first words we hear from Judas. The very first words we hear from Judas is, why are you doing that? This money that you could have sold this uh, perfume and used the money for the poor. Now, that sounds reasonable, right? You could take the money and use it for something that is better. In fact, there was a church that they spent over $50,000, could have been more, 
to rent a helicopter to drop eggs from the sky with candy in it. You spent that much money to drop eggs and candy just going to give the kids cavities when you could have been using that money to feed poor people. You could have been using that money to clothe people, to help people pay their mortgage, but you're using it to drop eggs from the sky. What a waste. Judas is not that far off, right? When you read the book of Proverbs, Proverbs says the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. One of the things that sway us when it comes to our politicians is do they have care for the less fortunate? Do they care about the poor? If Judas was running for office, you might have voted for him because he had seemingly care for the poor. So when we look at Judas's words, he seems to have a concern for people who are less fortunate. Not just his words here, though, but know that Judas also preached the gospel. When Jesus sent them out, they would preach, and they came back elated, excited about what had happened. You know what they didn't come back and say? We did so good, but Judas, he was out there, and he got the order of the Roman road wrong, and he kept trying to preach, and he kept stumbling, and I don't think he's ready for this. Is that what they said? No. Judas preached the gospel. There were people who came to believe in the Lord through the message of Judas Iscariot. So his words seem to be right. Not just his words, though. What about his works? One of the things John calls him here in this text, he calls him a disciple. A disciple is a pupil or a learner. But Judas was more than just a disciple. Judas was one of the 12. He was one of the special men that God had called to be in a position that no one else was going to be in, to be the apostles. They would be the leaders of the church. And he called Judas to be one of those people. And in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 4, he called them together and he gave them authority to heal diseases, to raise the dead, to cast out demons. And they went out and they did that. They cast out demons, they healed. And when they came back, they were like elated. Oh, Lord, you should have seen all things we were doing. And when they came back, you know what they didn't say? Man, we was out there and doing great. But Judas, ah, man, like he got out there and he told one of the demons to come out. And they were like, no, you're one of us. Did that, that didn't happen. This means that Judas healed people. There were people walking around who would have said, I was blind a couple of days ago, and Judas Iscariot touched my eyes, and now I see. I didn't have this hand that you see now, but Judas Iscariot touched my hand, and now I have a hand. So when you look at Judas's words, and you look at Judas's works, they look great. They look awesome. But outward acts and words don't tell the whole story. And John, he's going to tell us the rest of the story. Because when he talks about what Judas had said in verse 4, when he says, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. John tells us that he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Paul says that that's what some of you were. You were adulterers, you were fornicators, you were 
thieves, but now you're different. You've been washed. He didn't say this about Judas. He said Judas was a thief. <clears throat> Present tense. And you got to be a real thief to steal from Jesus. You got to be a real thief to do that. Because if you're if you're a robber, you're like, oh, let's rob. You're like, oh, there's Mike Tyson. Let's steal from him. You'd be like, ah, nah, let's, let's steal from the old lady walking across the street. That's a, body, that's a better target. You're going to steal from the one who knows everything? But that's Judas. He actually used to help himself what was put into the bag. They took money for some reason, and they were probably using it for the, what they needed or they were giving it to the poor. And he used to help himself to what was put into it. He was a thief. In fact, I don't think John liked Judas all that much because, remember, John is writing his gospel after everything had taken place. So when you read John's gospel, sometimes he'll insert things in there that let you know he knew about this after it already happened. He does that a lot in his gospel. And he could probably look right outside right outside of his window and see Judas hanging from the tree. So he knows who Judas is. But at the time, he didn't know. He didn't know. And what's so crazy to me about this whole situation is that no one had any idea that this was what Judas was. He was a thief. In John chapter 6, Jesus said to him, to the 12, he called the 12 to him. And he said to them, have I not chosen you the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. He's talking about Judas. One of you is a devil. And then just walks away. Oh, wait, let us go. And they're probably like, whoa, wait, what? No, no, no. We can't. One of us is a devil? We should probably deal with that before we continue in this ministry. Someone's a devil? And then Jesus, at the end of his life, he's praying in the garden. And he says that he hadn't lost any of the disciples. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. John 17, 12. He calls him, some translations say the son of perdition. This means someone who is destined for eternal destruction. So Judas is a thief. Judas is a devil. And Judas is destined for destruction. And what's crazy to me is no one knows it. Nobody figured this out. You're a Bible student. You know that there's a parallel account of this event in the books of Matthew and Mark. And in that gospel, those gospels, it says that it was the disciples who saw what Mary was doing and got angry with her and said, this could have been used to feed the poor. But what John tells us, he gives us an insight, a specific detail that really Judas was kind of the ringleader. He was the one who had suggested it, and they probably said, yeah, he, he's right, which means they looked up to Judas as someone to listen to, like a leader. Judas. Remember at the Last Supper, Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And if they would have, if, if Judas was as bad as we all think he was, you think they would have said, one of us is going to betray you? Hmm, I wonder who that is. They didn't do that. You know what they said? Lord, is it me? You know how crazy it is where you, like, you're wondering, am I going to betray the Lord? Am I going to betray him? Like, you, you're not sure if you're going to do it. They didn't even suspect him. Now, you know, if, if, if someone else has a problem with somebody else, usually, and you're in the same room, it's awkward, isn't it? You know two people don't like each other. It's awkward in that room. You ever been in a room with two people where they just don't like each other? There's you guys in there. Somehow, <laughs> it's just you and them. And you're just like, ooh, okay. <laughs> oh, oxygen. That's, that's still 
important. I mean, it's awkward. Can you imagine for three and a half years, they're walking around with Jesus. He knows he's a devil. He knows he's a thief. He knows he's a, he's a son of perdition. And yet, Jesus doesn't treat him any differently at all. The disciples have no clue that he is who he is. Bartholomew raises his hand and asks the question. And he says, yes, Bartholomew, and answers his question. But when Judas raises his hand, he goes, what? What? What, Judas? Then the disciples would have had some inkling there's something going on with Judas. They had no clue, which tells you that the way Jesus treated Judas was with love and with respect, even though he was a devil, which I think is a good lesson for those of us, how we treat our enemies and how much more we should treat our brothers and sisters. But that's another sermon. They had no earthly idea. Outward acts and words don't tell the whole story. Having, listen, right doctrine and good religious activity prove nothing about saving faith. Having right doctrine and doing all the right religious activity, they prove nothing about saving faith. You can reach out your hand and heal somebody tomorrow. It doesn't prove that you have saving faith. You can get a PhD in theology and help millions of people, and it proves nothing about saving faith. You can cry in prayer meeting and give millions to the poor. It proves nothing about saving faith. doesn't tell the whole story. Here's my question to you this morning. What is your ultimate treasure? What is that thing you want to possess more than any other thing? Because when you look at this story, what you notice is that the disciples and Judas, they cared more about the worth of the perfume than they cared about the worth of Jesus. Here is Mary with this perfume that's worth a year's wages, and she sees that this is worth nothing compared to the Lord. And she breaks it and pours it out on his feet because she saw the worth of Jesus and wanted to give him something that was expensive, that cost her something. The disciples, they didn't see that. They said, oh, you're wasting it. It could be used for ministry. And this is what often happens, that ministry eclipses intimacy. That you can be so focused on the ministry that you're involved in, that you miss intimacy, that it's the Lord, it's Christ there with you, and you're concerned about the poor, which is why Jesus said to them, leave her alone. Stop bothering her. Why? He said, the poor will always be here with you. Echoing Deuteronomy 15, said the poor will always be here. You will always have poor people. Your politician, whoever you pick, they will not eradicate poor people. They'll always be here, which means you will always have an opportunity to serve poor people, Judas, disciples, if that's what you're really concerned about, even though it's not. You always have poor people, but then what do you say? But you will not always have me. And Mary realizes this. People believe perhaps Mary was one of the first, if not the first, to truly understand the gospel, that Jesus was going to the cross. He's not too far from the chief priest and, and teachers to kill him. Not far from that at all. In fact, after this incident, Judas goes out to betray him. 
Mary sees the worth of Jesus. So what do you love? What is that thing that you really love? What did Judas love? Judas loved money. He was a thief. He cared about greed. Why did he even follow Jesus? Maybe because he thought, oh, he's going to overthrow Rome. I'll be one of his disciples. I'll be in a place of prestige and power. Then when you realize, like, man, this dude, he ain't doing that. He's talking about dying. Eh, I'm out. And decide, I'm going to go betray him. What do you love? What do you treasure? What do you really want out of this? It's such an important question. I want you to listen to Colossians chapter 4 and verse 14. In Colossians chapter 4 and 4, verse 14, it says, Our dear friend Luke the doctor and Demas send greetings. This is Paul writing. And then in Philemon chapter um, 1 and verse 23 and 24, it says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So he mentions these men as fellow workers in the gospel. Now listen to 2 Timothy 4.9. Do your best to come to me quickly for Demas, remember, we just said he was a fellow worker, was with Paul, because he loved this world, has deserted me, and is gone to Thessalonica. He deserted Paul. A fellow worker deserted him. Why? He says, because he loved this world. What does John say about those who love the world? Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Demas was a fellow worker with him, and in that moment, he turned away from Christ to the world because he saw all that the world had to offer. He loved the world more than he loved God. He saw the worth of the things the world can give more than he saw the worth of Jesus. And when the fuel for your ministry is not love for God, it will not last, it will not sustain. And when you try to do ministry apart from intimacy, it will not last. So many people, they do work, 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 and they never are intimate. They never pour their love and worship upon Christ because they don't love Christ. They love doing things, and it doesn't last, and they fall away. Love for God is the only lasting fuel in ministry. Why was it that Jacob was able to work for seven years to get Rachel? How? He tells us in Genesis 29, 20, says, Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. I've been thinking about Psalm 37, verse 4, where it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And so many people, they take that verse and they say, I got to delight myself in the Lord. He'll give me the desires of my heart. What's that? A job and money and prestige and a wife and a car and a house. It's the desires of my heart. So I got to delight in the Lord. I got to read the Bible, go to church and delight in him. And then he'll give me the desires of my heart, which is so wrong and backwards. Listen, to delight yourself in the Lord and then to want something else? If I said to you, delight yourself in your wife, and then you'll get your mistress. Delight yourself in your wife so that you get a car. No, 
You are delighting in Christ. And when you are delighting in Christ, when you're delighting in the Lord, he gives you the desires of your heart. What is the desire of your heart? That which you've been delighting in, that is the Lord. So, so often we, we try to use delight in the Lord as a way to get what we want. It's the issue with Judas, it's the issue with Demas, it's the issue with so many people who have fallen away from faith, is they love the things of the world more than they love God. Your outward acts and words, they don't tell the whole story. So what is it that I want us to take away from this text, from this message? Three things. Here's the first thing I don't want us to do. I don't want us to become suspicious of everyone. I don't want us to become suspicious of everyone. I don't want you going around Matthew 7.21ing people. You know what Matthew 7.21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, went to the kingdom of heaven. There Jesus is talking about the fact that there are people who will say, we prophesied, we cast out demons. And he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. I don't want you walking around being suspicious of who's really among us. Who is really one of us? Hey, have you seen so-and-so? She wasn't at Sunday school today. Oh, well, you know, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Oh, did you see that um, uh, she wasn't at uh, cell group tonight? What's going on? Well, I don't know, but, you know, everyone who says to me, Lord, not everyone who says, Lord, that That's not what I want us to do, to be suspicious of everybody. Okay, this is not a game of Clue. We're trying to figure out who the murderer is. Okay, no one wants to go to Clue Baptist Church. People say, don't go to that church. You go to that church, everybody's a suspect. We don't want to be the kind of church where you feel like you're always under investigation. This is not a text that's causing us to be suspicious of everybody and trying to figure out who's who's really with us. Here's the second thing I want us to do. I want us to see this text as a mirror rather than a window. I want us to see this text as a mirror rather than a window. You look through a window to see something. You look in a mirror to see yourself. So many people, they use the Bible and they look through it to see, who who does this apply to? This applies to this person. This applies to that person. But I want us to see, how does this apply to us? Asking yourself the question, what do I treasure? What is the thing that I want to possess more than anything? Not caring about what is going on with her or what's going on with him. So don't use this text as a window to see other people's issues. Use it as a mirror to see what's going on in my heart. What's going on in my mind? And we'll be tempted to think that, well, it's easy to spot these people. It's very easy. Everything about this this story tells it's not easy. It is not easy to know who's with us and who's who's not. Which means the people that we should really be looking at, pastors, ministers, deacons, worship leaders, supplies to all of us. This is why this text has been so heavy on my heart as I've been thinking about it, because you're you're you think about all oh, these people are falling away. Geez, those guys are stupid. But man, they they were in the thick of it. They were speaking to thousands they we saw god do great things in their lives don't look at this text like a window to see other people's sin look at it like a mirror here's the last thing i want us to see this text not as a mirror 
but as a window. I want us to see this text not as a mirror, but a window. Now you're thinking like, what's, are you losing your mind? You just said, <laughs> you just said the very opposite. What I mean is when people read the Bible, oftentimes they read it and they're always asking the question, where am I in the text? How can I see myself? How can I, where, where am I? Kind of like when you, you know, when you uh, have, where's Waldo with your kids? And you're always trying to find Waldo. That's the point of the book, to find Waldo. And people treat the Bible like that. Where am I in the Bible? The Bible's not about you. The Bible's about God. So I want us to see this text. I want us to look through it to see God. How what do I see about the character and the nature of God? Not myself. What do I see about the character and nature of God? And when we look in here, we see the love of God. We see the patience of God, the sacrifice of God, that what Christ has done for us, that's what we see. Because so often we think that it is our own ability to keep ourselves in the love of God. That's what's going to keep us saved is our own strength and ability and grit and faith. The faith you have wasn't even your own. It was given to you. So when we read scripture, we're saying, how how can I see God? Not how can I see myself? Because when I see God, then I really see what's really, really important. The reality of who God is, is seen in the text. Here's my question. Five years from now, will you still be following Jesus? I'm not asking in five years from now, you'll still be at a particular church. I'm asking five years from now, will you really be still be following Jesus? Most of you, I think, would probably say, yeah, I don't plan on leaving Jesus. I don't plan on going somewhere else. But do you know that five years ago, people would have answered that question the same way, who are now saying, I no longer follow Jesus. I don't subscribe to any organized religion. I'm not a believer anymore. So what's the difference? Again, let's not look to ourselves. Let's look to him. In Jude, he says, now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling. He's able to keep you from stumbling, not ourselves. One of my favorite passages is in John chapter 10 and verse 27, where it says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. No one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. And just in case you're concerned that maybe somebody will, he says, My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. It is not so much about your ability to hold on to God, but it is really about His ability to hold on to you. If you're concerned today about, am I going to be with Jesus? Am I, do I have assurance of faith? Am I going to be a Judas? Am I going to be a Demas? Listen to me. Christ will hold you fast.
And like Mary, who was able to say, I don't care about the worth of this perfume. It is nothing compared to the worth of Jesus. May the worth of Jesus ever be before our eyes. And as we see his worth, may we praise God in the fact that he is the one who will hold us and no one will be able to snatch us from his hand. Thank you for listening. If you would love to hear more sermons like this one or find out more about our church, please visit us at villagebaptisthome.org. Until next time, take care and God bless.